Hello, everybody. Today, we are sitting here again with Tanya Jairus from the board of the Estonian Geoinformatics Society, and we are organizing the Baltic Git Conference. Today, we have the second of a series of short interviews about the Baltic Git Conference. And as a special guest, we have Romeo Dosha, the Vice President of Public Safety of the global company Arterion. Hi, Tanel. Hi, Romeo. Well, hello, Alex. Hello, Tanel. I'm excited to be here. Great to have you. So, um, Romeo, uh, you will be um, talking about drones today, right? So, please introduce yourself a little bit for our listeners. Where are you coming from and what is Arterion doing? Yes, yeah, so thank you for, for having me on, on the podcast. Uh, this is extremely exciting because uh, drones have really made an impact on our lives. And at first, it was just like the hobbyist community, you know, the people that wanted to get a fun video or a nice picture from the air. But what is happening now is really transforming across so many industries, and it's actually life-saving technologies. So a little bit about myself. Um, I was born and raised in Switzerland. So uh, my European ties uh, are, are definitely hurt as well in my, in my accent. Um, but I moved to California uh, very early on in my career because I really wanted to work on a space mission. That was my childhood dream. And I came to California. And uh, a few years after I had to get, you know, adjusted to this different world here in Silicon Valley. Uh, but a few years later, I got an opportunity to work on a couple of space missions where I spent 13 years doing some really cool stuff. And I really didn't think that I would have a job that is as cool or even cooler than what I was doing back then. I mean, I was working with rockets and uh, very involved with astronauts on the, on the crewed space flight side. So it was a lot of fun. But then drones, 10 years ago, the first drone that I came across uh, popped up and it really captured my, my attention. And what I first did was uh, I used it to do, you know, a, a artistic things. Uh, I focused on aerial panoramas because nobody had done that before. And quickly, my best friend, Mark Johnson and I, we realized, wait a second, we can use this technology to create um, maps. And that was very interesting because he had a company, Visual Law, where he does a lot of accident reconstruction from, you know, trail derailments to car crashes to airplane crashes, uh, buildings that collapse. And he had to either rent the helicopter or uh, buy uh, very expensive satellite imagery to create these maps and then use um, computer-generated uh, visuals to help explain how a certain accident uh, occurred. And suddenly we had the ability to put a GoPro camera on a drone and quickly take a picture or multiple pictures from an intersection and start working on it. And that transformed the way we saw this technology. Moving through all of this, I decided to put my focus more into drones and um, I spent seven years at the world's largest uh, drone manufacturer where I really built the enterprise side, which is the commercial side of the drone industry. So you have the hobbyists 
and you have the commercial side. So companies that could use the technology to enhance their workflows. And my focus was on public safety because I immediately knew that having an aerial perspective, a live view from the air would not only help search and rescue and fire incidents, but also law enforcement and humanitarian organizations. And so over the years, my focus has really been on integrating this technology into these um, missions where live data is so crucial, but also where mapping can make a difference uh, to the operation, to the next steps. And uh, it's been a tremendously fascinating time. What I did also realize was that uh, with the largest manufacturer, there were a lot of limitations because of the thinking of, of you know, a very proprietary software stack where you couldn't get access to it, where um, you know, integration wasn't as easy. And so I moved to this company, Autarian, because that's exactly where I saw my vision um, to, to, to become more fruitful, where we're trying to standardize the approach of robotics, not just drones, but uh, robotics in general, where we bring open source and open standards to the community so that we can do these missions more standardized with different technologies, not, not tied to one manufacturer. And that has been another huge learning experience. And so here we are, um, we're a short few weeks away from the Baltic conference where we will be talking about how drone technology is helping mapping and GIS projects. And it's super exciting. Thanks so much. That was a great introduction. Yeah, it was uh, fantastic. And as we uh, see that uh, you really have done this uh, character arc that you started with uh, with rockets, and then you just found the drones, and then you transformed the world of drones into what we see today. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what do you see? What are the main challenges in this drone area in public safety? What comes next? We have mapping photogrammetry already what is coming what's the next big thing that's a good question Tanelli. um you know the challenges are still plentiful this is new technology um, people don't always associate them directly with new technology they have they want to first see how the market reacts and i think over the last uh uh, good seven years now, we've seen that public safety has adopted drone technology across the globe. Um, it's not going to replace a helicopter or a fixed wing aircraft, but it enhances the capabilities dramatically. So from a technology perspective, we're seeing community buy-in, we're seeing better regulations. Uh, obviously, technology continues to improve, so we're seeing better capabilities. But what we're also seeing is use cases. How does this technology help? How, what can we use it for? And initially, mapping wasn't really um, on the forefront of it because you know, people didn't know about it. Um, and even to this day, a lot of accident scenes in public safety are hand-drawn or you have ground-based tools where you measure distances between you know, certain items, for example. And suddenly now we're bringing in this aerial technology and software workflow in the background that um, you know, 
makes this process easier, simpler, and potentially also safer. Um, if we can, for example, this, this road where we just had an accident on and we need to do the measurements, um, maybe it's a freeway and two lanes are closed. Uh, one lane is still open for traffic to pass by because you know we, we can't just close an entire road for hours. Uh, it's dangerous. And if you have people walking on the freeway, measuring things, that takes time, it's dangerous. If we can do that from the sideline with a drone and cut down the time by 15%, that means that we can open up that road much sooner which has a direct economical impact. So we're making the job safer, we're making it more effective and efficient, and we're bringing benefit to the community. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer that this is something we need to continue to work on to make this even more impactful. So I think we've made tremendous advancements in getting the buy-in, getting the buy-in from the community, getting the buy-in from public safety or end users, uh, improving the processes, learning what else can be done. And now new technologies are coming to market. So we've been doing a lot of photogrammetry with regular RGB cameras, uh, potentially even with thermal cameras so we can see heat mm. sources. Mm. And now what's next? LiDAR. Now we're bringing yeah. LiDAR from ground-based to, to aerial-based technologies. Yeah. So the progress will continue. But one thing is clear. It's not just about the hardware, it's the data. These drones, for the most part, with the exception of drone delivery, they're data collection devices. We are collecting data and that data needs to go where it needs to be seen or processed. So the workflow, the pipeline, that's what's so important. And that data pipeline is what we are doing. Because right now, a lot of the data is handled manually on little SD cards. And that is not the way to scale up. So we're working on the pipeline system to bring the data where it matters. And that is really, in my opinion, a piece of the future. So there's still a lot of work ahead of it for, for all of us in the industry, but the progress that we have made over the last few years is tremendous. Great, wow. That's, that's, that's really exciting. I think you really, just barely scratched the surface and I want to spend the rest of the day talking with you about it. Give us, maybe give us a little feeling. So in, in, in comparison, uh, you, you must have heard about, you know, the whole Earth observation and satellite boom. And um, so I was just recently also talking uh, with some colleagues in the field and it's really the last 10, even more so the last five years where it's like so many developments that, that, literally changed the whole industry not only the industry like the whole sector um, um you know so in, in terms of drones and in terms of, of of your your area of work um how would you describe how do you feel the industry changed during the last 10 or even only five years yeah um alex I, I, I have the ability to really look back to the very, very early days. And so I can really see the changes and talk about it from firsthand experiences. And here's a, here's a great example. Obviously, um, here in California, we have natural disasters. 
uh, our wildfires. Mm. They have over the last few years truly gone out of control. And there are multiple reasons for it. Um, we don't even have to go into those, but, but obviously global climate change is something that is impacting us on a very large scale and getting better data from no matter satellite or aircrafts or drones or ground-based data help us to, to better mitigate the risks and impact of, of, of global climate change. So in California, we have these wildfires and I've deployed now to multiple wildfires as part of a special task force. And if I look back on our very first wildfire deployment that was in Santa Rosa in 2017, um, we were five departments, a mix of law enforcement and fire departments. And we came out there and we got integrated into the operations. It was a very large wildfire. We were mostly mapping um, areas of destruction in the city of, of Santa Rosa while active firefighting from the ground as well as from the air was still happening. And we collected all this great data and we did stuff that had never been done before and it was fantastic, but there was one really big piece missing and that was how do we better integrate that data? So it was just us operators of drones, we, we manually brought the data um, to a central hub where it got offloaded, where it got stitched together. So we had a Northern Mosaic map and then that was it. So we said, oh, there's something missing. And what was missing was the GIS integration. Mm. And these departments and these um, states, they have very sophisticated GIS teams available, but the data didn't go to them. So on the next wildfire, which just happened a few months later, for the first time, we had a GIS team with us. And that made a huge difference because now we were collecting the data. We were handing off the data. It got analyzed, it got integrated. And suddenly you have a product that is even more useful than what we had just one fire before, one deployment before. And then the following year, we went to the, we got deployed to the largest wildfire in California's history, mm -hmm. uh, where we lost uh, over 80 people. And we had an entire city burned down, the city of paradise. And now here we are mapping once again, and we have 16 drone teams that are continuously flying, collecting data, still very manual intensive labor, especially the data offload. But we had an entire GIS trailer with multiple teams in there that were getting the data, working with the data and presenting it in a way that made all the difference. And that to me is in very short, the evolution of the technology in a very specific use case and the quick progress that was made just based on understanding what can be done, understanding what kind of data we can get and understanding how can we better integrate it. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, but out of this uh, drone deployment, I understand that the, uh, till today it is that the teams with their drones, they drive to the location and then they launch the drones. And how do you see this uh, in the future? Should the drones be more independent? 
for example, should they just uh, fly there, carry their own charger, plug it in somewhere, and then just uh, use 5G or something to transmit the data? Or how do you see this happening in the future? That's exactly it, Daniel. Um, it's still very, very manual labor. We, we One operator controls one drone. Um, when we do mapping missions, you know, we, we, we set up the flight path. It calculates uh, the proper flight path based on what kind of resolution we want in the end product. And then the drone flies autonomously these grids. Well, that's, that's perfect, but you still have one operator, potentially one operator and one visual observer per drone. So if you have 16 drones flying, suddenly you have 32 people that are needed to do those tasks. And that's very cumbersome. That's a lot of effort. And then you have data that is on SD cards. And now you have to take the SD card out. You have to put in an adapter. You put it on a hard drive. You collect all of that. Then you have to get the hard drive to, you know, the GIS trailer, for example. There's still way too much uh, labor-intensive work involved. The future really is more about autonomy. These platforms have the capabilities um, with you know, GPS, uh, with um, sensors on the platforms to navigate um, through, through and over terrain in, in a very autonomous way. And now if we integrate them into an airspace structure where we know where other crewed and uncrewed aircrafts are, well, suddenly we have the framework to do much more autonomy beyond visual line of sight. So flying further than the human eye can see the drone, which right now is in most part of the Western world, the regulatory environment that unless you have a waiver, you can only fly within visual line of sight. So that's, you know, a kilometer, two kilometers away, depending on the drone and, the, and your eyesight, obviously. Um, but that, that's going to change. And you, you hit it right on the head, the integration of data into 5G or 4G networks is what's needed. Mm. We cannot continue to do manual data transfer from, from card or USB drive or hard drive to somewhere else. This, this works for a very low you know, volume mission, but for what we are trying to achieve and what we need to do, this is not sustainable. So autonomy connectivity and standardization. Yeah. That is key because we have multiple different drones. We can have, you know, multi-rotors which have propellers on top, two, three, four, eight propellers to fixed wing drones that fly like an aircraft uh -huh. to vertical takeoff and landing drones with a fixed wing. They, they take off like a helicopter, they transition to forward flight and use the wing but they all need to be standardized so that operation feels, you know, standardized and, and easy from one to the other. And yeah. then you can also do the fleet connectivity piece where you control suddenly multiple platforms at once. Mm -hmm. So that's the future I'm envisioning. Oh, I love, I love the passion you're, you're talking about, how you're talking about it. And you already teased a couple of, of really specific questions. So I'm maybe just going to ask you a couple of details. If, you know, the, the, the actually those action teams with computers in those trucks, and then there's other trucks where you have the drone platforms, 
because I guess they are quite big. How big are those drones? And then from there, you then cover those several square kilometers of mapping. You come back, collect the data. Maybe give us a little tech roundabout here right now. Yes. Okay. So um, deploying to natural disasters is extremely fascinating because it's, uh, you know, you, you, you get pu pushed into this area where you have destruction and your infrastructure is down. So very likely you have initially in the, in the first few days, no power, no connectivity, and you're working in a very, very um, challenging environment. And so technology is being brought to these areas to restore potentially power, to restore connectivity, and also to bring in truly these command centers um, for a variety of different functionalities. And the GIS teams, they have their own, let's call it command center. Think of it as one of those big trucks that you see in the movies driving down, you know, Route 66 in the United States. And, you know, they have this, this long back piece there. And that's now all converted into, you know, an office space. So you have workstations, you have connectivity in there, you have printers, you have large scale printers where you can print maps um, immediately on a very large scale format. And those have become so beneficial because that's the, 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 the center thing, hub. Yeah? Of Pr printing the maps is still a thing, even in those environments. Yes, yes, it, it is. Because, you know, keep in mind that especially in the first few days, um, you, you have a little connectivity and B, um, communications is difficult. So your teams come back in and if you can provide them with updated maps right. of the area, yeah. um, they yeah. take that with them and, and head out again to continue their missions. So we always had um, printed maps as well. Once we got connectivity back and we could get on our iPads or laptops and we could download um, the latest uh, electronic maps, right. it became kind of redundant, but there is still a need for those, those maps. So it was very fascinating to see that you had these almost little towns of multiple vehicles you know, one was for the search and rescue team. One was for um, the urban search and rescue team that was going in for, you know, checks. One was for law enforcement. One was for fire. And then one was for, for GIS. And they all work in sync. And you have your teams outbound. They're working in the field. They come back. They deliver data. And then they head out again. So it was an amazing operations. And at times, you know, there's hundreds and thousands of people um, working on these incidents. And it, it's a tremendously uh, challenging environment. But the GIS data is really, in my opinion, one of the centerpieces to make this even more smooth. And then you asked about orthomosaic mapping. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the best way to, to explain it, and I'm going to go very high level because uh, um, some people may know, some people may not, but we as human beings, we have a really amazing ability. We have two eyes and we have the brain. And so when we look at something, we can judge distance really well. So if you have a glass of water on your desk, 
you don't even really properly have to look at the glass of water, but you can reach out your hand and you can grab that water because you have that peripheral uh, view from two different perspectives. Now with a photo camera, you only have one perspective because you have only one lens. Mm. So if you close one of your eyes and you try to grab that glass, it becomes a little bit more challenging because you're seeing it only from one perspective. So distance becomes a little bit more difficult to judge. So photogrammetry in essence and orthomosaic maps are in essence the result of taking images and, uh, and, and combining the images so that they are to scale. And you do that by using a single lens camera and now you move it in space and you take another shot so that these two images overlap each other. And the more overlap you have, the better alignment you get. And so now you are moving across a field that you would like to map mm. and the drone moves in the air and every so often it takes that image and all these images overlap. And now with software algorithm, you in essence, put these images together, you create also in the background a point cloud where certain items on that image appear on multiple images. So if we have one tree in the middle of a field, that tree appears in many images from many different perspectives. And suddenly you have the ability with that algorithm to connect all of it and do it so that it's at scale. Mm. And now you can start doing measurements. And those measurements, are fairly accurate, also depending on you know your resolution, how high do you fly, how low do you fly, how much overlap do you have? But suddenly you can have an, a sub-inch resolution and you can do measurements that are certainly enough for most types of measurements. They may not be the great that you need if you were to build a bridge and you really have to be super accurate. Otherwise, you, you, you miss each other in the middle or something like that. Mm. But there are enough that you can start measuring distances, that you can do volume measurements that are extremely accurate. And you can do 2D maps or you can do 3D maps. You know, let's say you have a building and there are certain flight paths now that you have to take, because if you only do a, a bird's eye view looking straight down, you, you miss most of the side of the building. So now we can automate the drone's flight path and the camera angle so that the drone also captures the four sides of the building. Um, so now we can create 3D maps as well. Cool. And we're talking a lot right now about still images but now we're also already gotten to the point where we can do video and create those, those geo-referenced data sets from video. And to me, this is amazingly exciting. A more technical question. Where do you think that this uh, magic should happen? Should it be inside the drone or on the ground? Okay, let me tell you this. When, when drones first started to get integrated into public safety, let's say, a fire incident. The incident commander, the person that is responsible at the scene to make the decisions, gets so much data from many different sources. You know, he, he or she has to listen to the radio. So radio communications from 
team members on the ground. Uh, maybe they're behind the building, seeing something that the this incident commander on the other side is not seeing. Then there is video footage, also ground-based. There's maybe um, CTV camera footage that also is available to the incident commander. There is now uh, drone aerial data that comes to the incident commander. There's so much data that comes in. And now the incident commander has to make a decision. Well, here is reality. About 90% of the data that comes from a drone is useless. We don't need that piece of data. Now, that's not true for every mission. Like if you do an orthomosaic mapping, 100% is important because you have to put all of this together. But if you're looking at a, at, at a fire spreading through a big building, um, the majority of data points are not relevant to you. You need that 10%, that 10% actionable data. And how can you get that 10% so you don't have to weed through the 90% first because that takes time and overloads our human brain. So we do need some sort of potentially AI algorithm that runs potentially on the drone that only provides the data points that are relevant. Or we need software on the ground where um, the data runs through and provides with that actionable data piece so that ultimately the incident commander can draw from his or her experiences over his or her career and make decisions based on that 10%. I don't think right now we are anywhere near close where any sort of robotics can say, okay, Romeo, based on all the parameters I have gathered, you should now do this we still need human experience and knowledge that um, comes into the play, but we can enhance that experience. We can help with data points so that that incident commander can make that decision faster and better, which then potentially saves lives, lives of, 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 of his own team members and potentially also saves a building that's otherwise would burn down. So, there's a lot, lot of interesting stuff happening. Obviously, AI, uh, the, the, the machine learning component has to be part of it because so much data is being gathered and generated. And if we need to make a decision quick, there's no way we as human can process all that data on our own as quickly. Um, how, if I may ask, how, how is the data handoff organized with the participating parties in the projects? Yeah, so there has been an evolution uh, over the last five, five years as well, five, seven years. In the beginning, most of these drones are being flown with the remote controller. And many of us have seen or even held a remote controller, usually has two sticks to operate the device, has additional buttons, and it has a little screen. That can be an iPad, a smart device. Um, it could be a built-in screen. And in the beginning, this was the way to see the live view from the drone. So you would have the operator that saw on that screen what the drone is seeing. And you had everyone hurdled around that person trying to look over his or her shoulder. And obviously, that's a major data bottleneck. Then we 
had an evolution. We had an HDMI out port on that radio controller. So now we could connect a larger monitor, have that a few meters away, oh, wow. and people now could stand around the monitor and see the live view. That was already a huge step forward. But then there is the incident commander or there are the teams that are remote that may not be on scene, but they need to see what's happening too. So we started to stream. And, you know, first we would do a YouTube stream, for example, which obviously is not a perfect way. If you're utilizing, you know, a social media platform to get your data onto so other can watch. But that was the, those were the early days of streaming. So then streaming software and streaming solutions came to market. And that was, that was really what elevated all of this because suddenly I could be in my office or at the station and I could see what the drone team was doing miles and kilometers away and I could assist from afar. So that has really become kind of the standard that we need to get the data in almost real time to where it's needed. And that's also part of the premise that, that we have that you know, the live stream needs to be there. But if we do like a mapping mission or if we do an inspection, um, th those data points, those images also need to be seen remotely because maybe the inspector is not on site. So maybe the inspector just wanna see live the image that was taken of this damaged cell tower and see what kind of repair work has to be done, but wants to do it in real time because he may wanna tell the drone operator, hey, um, can you move a little bit more to the side? I wanna see you know, that intersection a little bit better. And doing that really allows for more efficiency. But now imagine if the inspector at home or in the office can also control the drone and get the exact shots that are needed to make that next decision better. That's the future. So the data handling is still a challenge um, to, to public safety, not only because we have a lot of regulations, we have privacy regulations, we have regulations that, that say, hey, you have to keep the data available for you know, the public to request access to it. So it has to be stored in a way that is secure and safe, guarantees privacy, but is also accessible so that maybe in six months, we can go back to that exact moment and take a look at this exact second. Um, so that is a challenge. And working on those pipelines is why I truly believe um, we have such big relevance in the market because we have started to forget that it's about the data. It's not necessarily about the hardware anymore. Beginning of big changes. We've covered a lot of topics here and uh, how do this challenge and these uh, topics, how do they relate to your presentation in our conference? Obviously, I have multiple objectives for the conference. Number one is I wanna help people see the value of drones. I want to get people to understand what the workflow looks like right now. How do you do a mapping mission, a 2D map or a 3D map? How does the data workflow um, currently go? And what is the very near future look like? 
how are we automating that process so that we don't touch the data physically until we get that actionable data piece. That could be, you know, a 2D map, either in a GIS format uh, through Esri, for example, um, or whatever the output needs to be. So it's kind of like an evolution within the conference. So what is the technology? How does it work? What are the challenges? What are the benefits? What does the current data workflow look like? And what is Romeo and Atarian doing to make that process as simple and as integrated as possible? Yeah, I can see that there's uh, lots of done um, sort of solved and you can really focus on the, on the actual challenges, you know, the problem solving that you set out in the first place, you know, provide provide the actionable data so so the emergency um, people can can get to the right places early. Uh, how can people find out maybe more about Authorian or where can they find you if they if they want to reach out? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I'm pretty known as being very engaging with the community and that's what I enjoy because feedback is so important. Uh, hearing what the end users needs are is really what what helps us drive solutions forward. So Autarian, A-U-T-E-R-I-O-N, can be found on autarian.com. Um, we are on Twitter, on Instagram uh, as Autarian. Um, I'm also very active on social media, help spreading the, the news about drones, the positive impact of drone technology. Uh, Romeo CH is me on Twitter, CH is Switzerland. Confederation Helvetica, so Romeo CH. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do Instagram as well, but there I focus mostly on the artistic side. Please uh, make sure um, we connect, we meet, we talk. Um, as I mentioned before, feedback is something that we take very serious and that we want to hear and see what the needs are, what works, what doesn't work, so we can improve upon the entire process. Well, considering that you have already traveled the world and uh, been really close to space and everything, at which place would you, uh, which place do you like most and or ever wanted to visit, and uh, which place on Earth would you recommend? Oh wow! I love that question. Hmm. Um, okay. A few years ago, I did a project with ABC Good Morning America. That's a morning TV show uh, that airs pretty much every morning here in the United States. And we went to central Vietnam and we went inside the world's largest cave, Son Dong. And it was an amazing experience because it's an, a world unlike anything else. And just to give you trying to visualize it, you are in this big cave that has two areas where light comes in. They're called dough lines. And they're about 300 meters above the ground um, of the cave. And there's this beam of light that shines in. And it is so large in there that you have your own weather system. You have fog and, and the fog moves around. It looks like clouds. Um, there's a second area where you have a jungle inside the cave that has species that are not seen above. And 
to me, that was one of the most beautiful areas that I had ever come across. We did a live um, broadcast, flying drones in the cave and streaming that back to the studio in New York and into millions of households. Um, There's some spectacular videos out there. Um, Yes, it was out of this world. At at times, I felt like we were in Avatar. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just like that type of experience. Oh, that's great. And of course, the drone gives you perspective that you, even from the ground of the cave, just there's nothing that matches that, the scale. And also the challenges, because now you're inside this cave. Drones rely on GPS a lot. That helps you fly the drone yeah. um, more stable. But inside the cave, you don't have GPS. So now you're truly flying manual. And then you have these weather patterns, you have, you know, almost kind of like wind-like dynamics. So flying in there with that scale, um, it was extremely challenging, but it was so much fun. So that was definitely one of the most beautiful places. And if you ever have a chance to be one of those uh, groups that go in there, uh, they they have, I'm not sure, about two or three hundred spots a year. Um, where you can sign up. It's amazing. Um, I've also really, really enjoyed Iceland, the beauty of Iceland. And just very recently, a couple months ago, for the first time, I got to be in Estonia, in Tallinn. And while I didn't have enough time to to explore, I did enjoy Old Town Tallinn tremendously. And I hope that... By the time we have the conference, we still have that winter feel um, because I would love to see Tallinn with snow. Right. That is excellent. Right. Then yeah. uh, I'd really like to say, uh, say thank you, Romeo, for your time and how flexible you've been so pretty spontaneously being available for us. I'm really looking forward. Uh, we are really looking forward to see you in, in Tallinn at the Baltic Geospatial technology conference likewise this this will be a fun event um it's it's something a little bit more specific than what i usually do but that's good because i get to learn too and so um one of my personal goals is that i get to you know to learn a, a different side you know you are very very much experts in your fields and this these types of interactions help me tremendously and you know i may not know everything and I may have follow-up questions but that learning process goes both ways and I'm I'm looking forward to bringing some knowledge to the event but then also taking knowledge back that that's exactly the spirit cool then um thank you very much Romeo um see you at the conference bye-bye Alex Tanel thank you so much goodbye and see you all March 9 to 11 in Estonia bye-bye